Well, I would invite you this evening to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians and specifically to chapter 6. As we tonight, God willing, will be finishing off the book, or finishing up our reading through, I should say, of the book of Ephesians. As you know, um, I've already announced uh, what we're going to be doing next after this, uh, Song of Solomon. We should get started on that next, uh, next Sunday evening. So pray, <laughs> pray for that. It's actually the first time that I've addressed, uh, I've addressed that, that book in preaching or teaching. Obviously, I've read through it a number of times, but uh, it is, as one, uh, uh, as one pastor put it, an interesting book to preach through uh, with uh, its topics and so on. But in any event, that will begin next week. Have no fear. Uh, it will be edifying, as all of God's word is. But in the meantime, uh, we're now coming to Paul's closing words to the Ephesian church in his letter that he sent uh, to the Christians in Ephesus. So let us uh, ask for God's help in understanding what he had to tell us. Sovereign Lord, we ask now that you would be the light of our minds as we gather here today. We know, O Lord, that the devil is always at our elbow. Whenever the word is being read, he wants to distract us, to take our mind off of those things that are most needful, and to fix us uh, upon the things of time. He wants us to be thinking about what we're doing, what work is ahead of us, uh, grudges and silly things, trivia, anything to distract us. But Lord, we pray that you would not let him. Help us now, O Lord, to hear your word and to apply it. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 6, and I'll be reading verses 18 through 24. I do remind you, this is the word of the Lord. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints, and for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. But that you may also know my affairs and how I am doing, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace to the brethren and love with faith, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with uh, all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen and amen. Well, we've come full circle, brothers and sisters. The Lord uh, had uh, prompted, obviously, Paul to write to the Ephesians, a church that he had labored in, or a city, rather, that he had labored in, building up the church and establishing congregations, training up pastors and elders and so on for three years. A people who loved him greatly, as we see in places like Acts chapter 20, when the Ephesian elders weep upon his neck at the uh, news that he is going to Jerusalem and will probably be uh, imprisoned as he was. You remember he is writing to them now from jail, and he's finishing up his letter. Now, the apostle Paul, you remember, had started out his message to these Ephesian Christians, telling them, even as he sat imprisoned in a Roman jail, that he had been overjoyed as the father in their faith to hear reports of their, their strong and abiding faith in the Lord Jesus. And even as a prisoner in chains for the sake of Jesus Christ, he has not ceased, he reminded them, to remember them in his prayers. And I can't help remarking uh, at this point, once again, what a model Paul is for us. 
Even in prison, in a Roman jail, in the worst of circumstances, Paul never stopped praying for his fellow believers. And this is because he knew how critical and effective prayer is in the Christian life. It is literally the most powerful thing that we can do for one another. So now it makes sense that at the end of his letter, even as he encouraged them to pray for all the saints, uh, as no one is so uh, perfect that they don't constantly need their brothers and sisters interceding for them. Incidentally, uh, I can't reiterate that enough in my own case. I need your prayers constantly. If I am to labor as a minister in this church, I, I need you to be praying for me on a regular basis. There are many encouragements that you can give me, uh, many ways that you can help me to bear my burdens, but the greatest thing, and I don't, I'm, not, um, I'm not saying this glibly at all, the greatest thing that you can do for me is to pray for me and also for my family. This is a, a very needful. Paul knew the same thing. He needed the intercessions of his fellow Christians, and so he asks now that they would pray for him. Now, we should look at what he asked them uh, to pray for. Uh, he doesn't pray, ask uh, them that they would pray that he would be found innocent of the charges against him and then be freed. He doesn't say that. Neither does he pray that he would have enough uh, clothes to wear or enough to eat. No, what he asks for is that they would pray that he, Paul in jail in Rome, would have opportunities to boldly share the gospel. And he says that they should be praying always in every season uh, Whenever they think about it, pray for him. Pray for his ability to spread the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with boldness. Now, why does he, as an apostle, need this? A lot of people would say, well, you know, this is the apostle Paul. Why on earth is he praying that the people in Ephesus would pray that he would have boldness to preach the gospel in Rome? I mean, he's got superhuman abilities. He, he feels no fear. Why, why on earth would he need that? But the, the fact is, brothers and sisters, although he was inspired of God, an apostle selected by the Lord Jesus Christ, chosen to carry his message to the Gentiles, he was still a man like you and I. He still had fears. In fact, he said in 1 Corinthians 2.2 2, uh, to the Corinthian congregation, when he was talking about how he had first come to Corinth, this city in Greece, and how he had begun to preach the gospel to them, preaching Christ crucified, he said, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you, he says, in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. This is the Apostle Paul speaking, but can you imagine how intimidating it must have been for this, this Jew, Paul of Tarsus, to come to this, this Corinthian city, the Las Vegas of the Roman Empire, and to suddenly be standing before people, in many cases, who had no background whatsoever in the Old Testament, who knew nothing of God, in the city that he knew nothing of firsthand, and then to have to stand up before people and then preach that word, what would happen? I can tell you, uh, I, I, I love the Word of God. It is my favorite thing to discuss with people. In fact, I hate to admit this to you, but I small talk out of necessity. I, I, I'm terrible at it, and I really have very little interest in the weather and in um, sports and, and things like that. I love to talk about theology. Unfortunately, I also love to talk about politics, but we'll set that aside for a moment. But... When it comes to preaching the word of God, standing up in front of people, one of the things that always strikes me 
are the words of James in James 3.1 when he said, let not many of you be teachers of the word because you will be held to a stricter judgment. I always remember that whatever I say to you, I will have to answer for before my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ someday. And that intimidates the living daylights out of me, to put it quite frankly. I never come, I pray I never come, at least in my own power, trusting in my own strength and my own verbiage. And I know for a fact that Paul would have felt exactly the same way. It's a tremendously intimidating experience. And somebody as versed as he was in the Old Testament, I'm just guessing he was a little bit of an introvert as well. So this is a a process that he needed supernatural help with. He also knew that he could not change men's hearts by himself. No man can. He knew that he needed the words that the Lord would give him, and then he needed the Spirit's effectual calling power to change his listeners within. Now, Calvin said this. It was very interesting. And keep in mind, this is John Calvin saying this. He says, fear hinders us from preaching Christ openly and fearlessly, while the absence of all restraint and disguise and confessing Christ is demanded from his ministers. Paul does not ask for himself the powers of an acute debater, or I should rather say of a dexterous sophist, that he might shield himself from his enemies by false pretenses. It is that I may open my mouth to make a clear and strong confession. For when the mouth is half shut, the sounds which it utters are doubtful and confused. To open the mouth, therefore, is to speak with perfect freedom without the smallest dread. And that in the Greek is what Paul was asking for. Pray that I would be able to open my mouth. And how many times has it been that you or I have been in a situation where we know we should have opened our mouths for the gospel, and yet we did not have the strength or the fearlessness or just the conviction to do so? He prays, let that happen. Let it be the case that when the door is open for the gospel, I step through rather than drawing back. Paul looked for utterances to be given to him. From above, he was not depending upon his own natural powers. Um, one, uh, I, I think it was uh, Fawcett who once said, "The shortest road to any heart is by way of heaven." Pray to God to open the door and to open your mouth so as to avail yourself of every opening. And that is very true. Now he calls himself. Interestingly enough, you'll notice in verse twenty he says, "For which I am an ambassador in chains." He's an ambassador for Christ, an ambassador for Christ's gospel. The word there is presbyuo, and it's, uh, as you might guess, related to the word presbyter or elder, but it means, in this case, a representative, one who speaks for another. Paul spoke as Christ's representative in that place in Rome. Although he was in jail, he still knew that God had sent him there, that he was exactly where the Lord intended him to be, and therefore he knew that it was his calling to speak for God in that situation. The Lord had told him that he was his, his instrument, his minister to the Gentiles, and even his minister in the court of Caesar. And so, as an ambassador, he knew that as he spoke, he was not to be delivering his own message, his own opinions, but those of his king, his true Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus had said, go there, and he went there, even knowing that he would be in chains. There is, uh, however, something of a paradox here, ambassadors were supposed to be inviolable. You were sent as a representative of another kingdom. You weren't supposed to be clapped in chains, and yet that is what had happened. And the fact is, he had come bearing the best news in the world and had been horrifically mistreated by the Romans. And yet, note this, he doesn't hate them for it. Not at all. He doesn't even hate his own people, the Jews, who had desired to kill him and then had only grudgingly turned him over. 
to the Romans. He pities them. His great desire, he says, is that they would come to know Christ as well. And he sees these chains that he's been thrown into as an opportunity, as a place where he can, because he has to deliver his defense before Caesar, as a place where he can deliver the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not to, to, to whine on his own behalf or to say, well, I didn't do much, you know, that kind of thing, and try to turn everything away from him. But rather, he wants to put the spotlight on Christ. If you look at his defenses in the book of Acts, he does that again and again. He speaks the truth about how he was saved. He talks about that that moment that he was changed on the Damascus Road and how now he had gone before kings in order to proclaim the truth of the gospel. The apostles of Jesus Christ were sent with authority to speak in his name, to propose the terms of reconciliation, to tell them how they might have an end to the warfare between them and the God who had called them, how the rebellion might be put to an end. And so he is a man who is given this calling par excellence to be an ambassador to the Gentiles. But you and I, brothers and sisters, are given this calling as well to give a reason for the hope that we have. We are always called upon to do that with gentleness and respect. We're reminded of to do that, but, but at the same time to always be seeking those openings to be ourselves ambassadors for Christ. I hope you pray for that, and I hope you ask others. For instance, when you go abroad, when you get on a plane, one of the things that I pray for is, Lord, give me an opportunity to share the gospel with whoever I'm seated with, and then give me the fearlessness to be able to talk about that. Now, it has been the case sometimes that I've been tired or I've been distracted, and I haven't prayed that prayer. And then when the opportunity opens itself, I didn't follow through on it. I pretended to be asleep or something stupid like that or read a book or, you know, engaged in that, that stupid small talk that I don't really enjoy very much. But there have been opportunities when I have prayed that prayer that I have been able to talk for a long period of time about the gospel, about the Lord's work in my life and the potential of the Lord's saving work in theirs. Pray about that. Pray that you would be given boldness to open your mouth. Now, in verse 21, where, you, uh, where we read, he says, but that you may also know my affairs and how I am doing. The fact was the Ephesians loved Paul. He was a beloved instrument of the gospel in their midst. They loved the way that he had loved them, and he had labored in their midst tirelessly. He had taught them the truth. Uh, we remember that uh, Paul had opened up his own school of theology in the, uh, the Theater of Tyrannus, a place where probably debating and uh, acting and things like that were taught. And yet he had used the time when everybody else, when it was the heat of the day, he'd used that time to tirelessly teach the people of God. That, despite the fact that he was also, as you know, a tent maker in the literal sense. We use tent making to speak of having uh, a, a separate occupation that we use to fund our gospel ministry. But sometimes we forget that Paul literally was a tent maker. He worked with fabric making tents probably for the Roman military and their use, and he did that in order to fund his ministry in the midst of Ephesus. The Ephesians could not have but noticed his willingness to sacrifice his comfort, his belongings, his income, his time, his life for them and for their sake so that they would be built up in the truth. Now, do you think of mentors that way? Do you think of those who have poured themselves out upon you as beloved fathers in the faith? Uh, 
Are they people who you care about, who you want to continue to encourage and pray for? I pray that's the case. You would be surprised at how much even the mentors who simply disciple younger men and so on, how much of their time and their life and their effort is spent with people. Or, you know, I, I used to, oh my word, I was awful. When I was a young convert, God set several mentors in my way, and I used to pester the living daylights out of them. It was nothing for me to say, can we get together uh, for lunch, uh, or can we go to breakfast? I have questions, I have questions, I have questions. And these men, time and time again, would take time out of their schedule to meet with me and to set me straight on these topics. And I didn't realize until I became a pastor how much that takes out of you. Because I know that I was not the only person in their life. They were dealing with, with other things, their families, and so on. And yet, they were willing to do that for the sake of Christ and for my growth in him. And I pray that you would see your mentors through that light as well, as, as people who are being poured out upon your life in order that you might grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord, and that you might respond by praying for them. And, and telling the Lord that you're, you're grateful for them and sending other ones into your life. Obviously, it doesn't have to be uh, men who come into your life. Obviously, uh, for the ladies, older women who are willing to do the same kind of thing. But they loved him, and they were concerned. Um, yeah, we see that in Acts, the, the crying on his neck and so on. And they would be fearful about his status. How is Paul doing? This was a time uh, before, of course, there were texts or emails or telegraphs or even a reliable mail system. And there might have been rumors that were being spread. Certainly his enemies might have been spreading rumors. Oh, didn't you know that Paul compromised the gospel in Rome? He turned his back on Christ. He, he declared Caesar is Lord, and uh, that was the end of it, and so on. And he doesn't want them to, to be concerned that he might be dead or ill or that something awful might have happened in his faith and so on. So he sends his brother in Christ, Tychicus, to let them know how he is doing in Rome and also, as he says, to relieve their anxiety concerning him, to take away their fears. Now, uh, Tychicus is mentioned four times in the Pauline epistle and once in the book of Acts. Uh, and the word that Paul, or the two words that Paul uses to describe him to the Ephesians are that he is an Adelphos, he is a brother, and that also he is a diaconos, that is, he is a servant. Now, that is a word uh, you will probably know also means deacon. Here, interestingly, though, they translate it neither servant nor deacon. How do they translate it? They call him a minister. They call him a minister. Now, uh, there's been a ton of speculation uh, behind why Paul used that word diakonos. Uh, did he mean that he was Paul's servant, his personal helper, a, a, a secretary who helped him to write things and then would deliver the letters, like an amuensis, for instance, uh, as well as his brother in Christ? Um, there are several people who have advocated seeing it that way. Um, but most of the Bible translations translate this word deliberately minister. Why would they do that? Well, the answer uh, to that is in verse 22. He says that he sent Tychicus to them, not only that they might know his affairs, but that he may comfort your hearts. Okay, now this is that he might minister to you as well, that he might bring the comfort, not just of knowing Paul is doing well, but that he might bring the comfort of the gospel to them. 
And so the probability is very strong that he's speaking of him as a minister in Christ. Uh, he's going to console, uh, console them not only with uh, Paul's good news, but the consolation that, that is greater than any other consolation, the consolations of the gospel. Now, why do I make a big deal about that? Well, because, um, uh, and this may come up in your lives at some point, in Romans 16.1, Paul sent uh, his letter to the Romans most likely with Phoebe who he speaks of as an Adelphi, uh, Adelphos is male, Adelphi is, uh, so it's brother, sister. Uh, she's a sister in Christ, and he speaks of her also as a diakonos. Um, and the difference here is, he didn't say that she's going to minister to you. What he says to them is that, therefore, he implores the Romans to help her, help her with whatever she needs to do there. He doesn't indicate that she is a minister. And so therefore, it's better to translate it instead of deacon or anything else as a servant of the church. Uh, this is of tremendous importance today when we struggle over the issue of women's ordination and whether or not Phoebe was in fact a deacon in the ordained sense or, and some have gone beyond and said minister in the same sense maybe that Tychicus was and that's not the case. I want you to know from the word. But, Going on to verse 23, as he's concluding his letter, he, uh, he greets them, uh, or he signs off his farewell with one of his standard phrases, which is, peace to the brethren. It is a, a benediction. And um, he's not saying uh, that, you know, let there not be strife amongst the brethren or so on, but that they might have all of the, the favor of God the Father in their midst, that uh, his his Charis, uh, his favor might be in their, in their midst, and that it would produce irene, a peace with God and man, a real peace. It's not just peace with, uh, you know, we're going to, I'm going to forget your, uh, your heresies, you're going to forget mine, and we'll have unity on that basis and, and peace. We'll gloss everything over. But that we will have peace in God and in his word. That's something that Paul uh, continuously emphasizes. This is a peace that comes from God, and we find it in the unity of the gospel. And he wants them to have love with faith. That doesn't mean that he's talking about two distinct blessings. There's, there's love and then there's faith. But he says... He wants them to have this loving faith for Christ, love united with faith. Um, Charles Hodge wrote, faith they had. Paul's prayer was that love might be connected with it. The love intended must be brotherly love. And he says, of course, that this is something that comes from the Father and the Son. Note here, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are united as objects of worship. They are the source of these spiritual blessings that he is hoping that the people in Ephesus will have. And then the last verse, chapter 24, he says, Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity, okay, who are truly united to Christ by faith, who love him, who have his grace dwelling with them, who love the Lord Jesus. It's one thing to know about the Lord Jesus, but it is another thing entirely to be known by him and to love him in sincerity. I've, I've talked many a time about how Jesus didn't ask Peter at Galilee, do you believe uh, that I am he who descended from heaven in the name of the Father and so on, or that the, do you believe the propositions that I propounded while I was walking with you, Peter, and so on? And he asked him a very simple question. Do you love me? Do you really love me? And Peter at the end has to say, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. You know, no matter how weak I am, in other words, and how I'm a, a sinful man, you know that at heart I love you. Paul is talking to the people like Peter who genuinely love the Lord Jesus Christ. It is necessary to love him. 
and he says that this is the person who's God, uh, who God's favor rests upon, the person who truly loves Jesus, who sees Christ as the supreme object of his love, and in turn, Christ loves him and dwells with him. Uh, the reverse of this was in 1 Corinthians 16.22. Paul said, if any man love not our Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema and maranatha. That's cursed until his return. Now, what he is saying, this is terribly important. He's saying that to love Christ is to be known by him and to be saved by him so that when he comes back, you will be the object of salvation. But to not love him is to be under his curse so that when he returns, it will not be a day of rejoicing. The difference in our salvation, therefore, obviously this is the grace of God bestowed upon us, but the critical factor is love, the love that Christ has shown to us and the response, our love, he loved us first, that's why we love him, our love to him. That shows whether or not we are, we are saved. Love to Christ, he is saying, is an indispensable condition of salvation. And not just, I love Christ as the fad that I'm going through. It was Frisbee football last year. Now it's Jesus. I'll do that for a little while, and then I'll move on to something else. It may be Buddha in a year or two. No, it's a, a, not a, the fleeting earthly love, but a, a spiritual love, an eternal love. Now, Charles Hodge makes this comment, and I, I want you to hear It's a little extended, but I, I really listen if you can. There must be an adequate reason for this, he says. Want of love for Christ must deserve final perdition, that is damnation. And love to him must include preparation for heaven. This of necessity supposes Christ to be God. Want of love to him must imply enmity to God. It is all a delusion for anyone to think he can love the infinite spirit as manifested in nature or in the scriptures if he does not recognize and love the same God in the clearest revelation of his character and his most definite personal manifestation and his most intimate relation to us as partaking our nature, loving us, and giving himself for us. Love to Christ includes adoring admiration of his person, desire for his presence, zeal for his glory, and devotion to his service. It need not be ecstatic, but it must be controlling. Jesus is God, manifest in the flesh. And if we do not love him, if his love does not control us, if it is not the center, the burning, fiery sun of our solar system, then we don't really know him. And certainly we don't know uh, God. If we don't know his son, the most intimate, the most personal, the most true revelation, the final revelation, the author of Hebrews tells us, if we don't know Jesus, we don't know God the Father, and we can't be saved. It is only through the one mediator between man and God that we are saved. Paul emphasizes this again and again in his epistles. Even in closing, he makes it clear that the great difference between the saved and the lost is the love of Christ. That is it. It's not something in us. It's not our righteousness. It's not any work that we can do. It is the love of Christ manifest in our hearts and then reciprocated by the person who receives it back to the Savior. So, in closing this, let me make it very clear, if you don't love Christ, you're in trouble. Greater trouble than you could conceive of. You are, as Jonathan Edward put it so well, Jonathan Edwards, sorry, put it so well in his, his great sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, you're like the spider dangling above the flames on a thin thread that could snap at any moment, or walking about over an inferno on a rotten floor that you can fall through at any moment when you die. 
If you know not Christ, you are not safe. But if you know Christ, if you love Christ, you need fear nothing in this world. You don't need to fear men. You don't need to fear your peers. You don't need to fear being canceled in this canceling society that we live in. You need fear none of that. You don't need to fear what what diseases can do. We don't need to fear giant meteors. We don't need to fear plagues because we're in Christ and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. The love of Christ is eternal. He never stops loving his own. Once he has taken hold of his child, he will never let go their hand. Nothing, he says, can take them from my hand. All whom the Father gives to him, he will keep to the very end. And if you love Christ, then you will persevere, not because of any greatness that you have, but because of the greatness of your Savior. Final word also. Note this, that Paul speaks of all true believers in Christ as brothers in Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus in sincerity. It's a reaffirmation of the fact that there may be small differences in the beliefs of various Christians, but nonetheless, we are all one in Christ. If the love of Christ is in our hearts, and I mean the biblical Christ, the true Christ, the Trinitarian Christ, the Christ who is the Son of God, if you love him, and you know somebody else who loves him, the same Christ you love, then that's your brother, that's your sister. I've always said that anybody who confesses the solas of the Reformation, sola scriptura, sola solus Christus, and loves Christ in truth, I did go through all five, I'm so sorry. Sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, etc. Confesses them, then he is my brother. A man by the name of McElwain said, where the Lord Jesus has a true believer, there I have a brother. And uh, Robert Hall said, he who is good enough for Christ is good enough for me. And that's so true. I don't care whether they're a Baptist, a Wesleyan, uh, even a crazy Pentecostal. If they love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity, then they are my brother or my sister. And we will spend eternity together in heaven. Remember that. You're part of the same body. And so we need to pray for all believers, not just members of the ARP. We do need to pray for the ARP. We need to pray for this congregation. We need to pray for one another. But we need to pray for the worldwide church. It's one of the reasons why we have these prayers for the persecuted church in your, your folders. We need to be praying for brothers and sisters in places like Turkey. I guarantee you not every Christian t- uh, church that's being persecuted in Turkey is reformed. There are a few, but most are not. But we still need to be praying for those brothers and sisters who know the Lord and yet are being persecuted for his name over there. Remember that as we together advance towards that glory that remains for those who love and are loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go before him now. Gracious God, Lord, I pray that you would do that work that only you can do of stirring up love in our hearts, love for one another that we would be constantly, as Paul called, praying for one another ceaselessly. Whenever we think of a brother or sister in Christ, may it be that we stop, we pause for a moment and pray for them, especially if we know they have needs. Or if we know of somebody who is outside of Christ and we think of them, let us pray that you would do that work in their hearts, saving them, that only you can do. I pray also, O Lord, that you would make us a people who love Christ with such great fervency who know with a certainty that he is the Son of God, the only Savior, the mediator between man and God, and that we would put all of our trust upon him. Let us lean upon Christ, 
close with him by faith and know the love of Christ that will never end. We